When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. There's a very good chance you've never heard of my guest on this week's show. To be totally honest, I'd never heard of him either until I decided to check out his new one-person show called Literally Who Cares, which premieres on HBO this Saturday, December 16th. It's also possible you've never heard of him because, at just 25 years old, Leo Reich is the self-described youngest comedian ever. That's the first joke in his new special. But as we discuss in this great conversation, it really helps set up the persona of a disaffected, contradictory, queer narcissist that he inhabits on stage for an hour, and might have more overlap with his own personality than he's willing to admit to himself sometimes. The show, which Leo was inspired to write during the pandemic just after he had graduated university and premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2022 before going on to longer runs in London and New York, is so much more than a typical stand-up hour using music, lights, and, yes, a few gimmicks to put us inside the mind of a Gen Zer with real anxieties about the future. It's also one of the funniest hours I've seen all year. In this clip from early in the special, Leo shares some earnest thoughts about why he wanted to express himself through comedy before pulling the rug out from under the audience with his first song of the night. Why be funny? Why be funny right now? Well, for me, ever since I burst onto the scene in the late 90s when I was, in layman's terms, born, I feel... (laughs) I feel like the world's got so much darker, right? I read the news these days, I'm left with these big existential questions. How do we stop the war? What's the economy? And... (laughs) What can I... What can I, as an individual, do to help other people cope? So, over the next two, three hours, I'm just going to try... I'm just going to try my very best to answer some of those questions. Uh, And I'm going to do it through the oldest, uh, the simplest, and the most powerful medium of all, just plain old talking about myself. (laughs) This is my story. And it starts with a song... Um, apologies in advance, this is the first song I, like, ever wrote, so it might be a bit, like, pretentious or adolescent or whatever, but it's just a song about my lived experiences, being a 20-something, and growing up in this increasingly scary time. Uh, so, yeah, you can play the track. some singing. No, we don't have time. Leo, great to meet you. Great to have you on the podcast. Um, I just got to see your special, your new special, Literally Who Cares, or Literally Who Cares. Is that more accurate? Um, I don't. Whatever dialect you choose to pronounce it in, it's fine by me. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's, it's so great. I didn't get to see it live, um, which would have been fun, but, uh, but it's great to see on screen as well. Um, I thought we could maybe start with your introduction that I believe you give to yourself in the special, 
which is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the youngest comedian ever. Something along yeah. those lines. Um, yeah, that you, is, uh, that's what I said. <laughs> where did that come from? Was that something you were, were you trying to get ahead of something, you know, sort of warn everyone that uh, they were about to see someone young or, or why did you want to start that way? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess that that's part of it. Um, but also, I guess, set up the kind of persona that I'm doing and also the kind of show that it is, which is, um, I guess, very much playing into... Or, or parodying the ways in which I see myself as marketable and the aspects of myself that I think could sell. Um, <laughs> and I think that, so there's like a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about being young in the show um, and in my act in general. Um, and I try and sort of really lean into a kind of um, sort of self-appointed voice of a generation, kind of young genius vibe um, in an ironic way. <laughs> Were you 23 when you taped it or how, how old are you now? I was, I was 25. Well, I'm 25 and I was 25 when I taped it. Um, but I was 20, 23 when I wrote it and started performing it. So I do lie about my age in the show, which oh, well, never yeah. comes up, but I, I just sort of <laughs> find funny. I find it funny for me. Um, well, the character is maybe uh, perpetually 23. I think that's, I think that's what we decided at a certain point. Uh, there's one joke in it um, that works better with 23 than, than 25. So it, it works on that level. And then the added thing of like, I think he would say that he was 23 forever, probably. Do you feel like you're playing a character on stage? Do you feel like there's a big difference between the the person who's on stage versus the person who's not? Uh, yeah, I mean, I it's hard. It's, it's, it is me and it's all, I mean, it, it is me. It's, I wouldn't say that I'm doing character comedy. I would, I would all say I'm doing stand up. Um, but at the same time, it's obviously like a manic, um, represent or like exaggeration of my most insane, uh, thoughts and feelings, um, wrapped up to a hundred. So I, I, I would hope that the experience of meeting me is really different to <laughs> to the experience of watching me on stage. I'm not one of those people who walk off stage and you're like, you're exactly the same. Um, but at the same time, but at the same time, it is like everything I say. I think is something that I have felt or thought on some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but being on stage sort of gives you the license to to say it in a way that maybe you wouldn't be able to in your personal life. Yeah, and, and I guess I, I think of the act more or the show more of uh like as a as a sort of holistic representation of how I feel um rather than a kind of like um total reflection of how I act, if that makes sense. Like it's it's meant to give the audience a sort of insight into the into the like deepest anxieties and fears and the narcissism and navel gazing um that goes on most of the time hopefully internally rather than externally and i i think the show is is like a, a like putting those things out in the open yeah there is a lot of uh anxiety about what it's like to be young right now in the in the show i think at one point you even say it's it's never been a harder time to be young which is i think sort yeah. of a joke sort of ironic but maybe some truth to it as well yeah, and I, I hope that's sort of the theme uh, tonally over the whole thing. It's like, it is a, totally a joke because, of course, it's um, it's in almost every way one of the easiest <laughs> times to ever yeah. be young, uh, especially for me specifically. One of the easiest human lives that there's ever been in the history of civilization is my life. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, you can't help but, I think, focus on 
the, the specific um, ways in which your own experiences are harder um, than they ever have been. And, and that's the kind of like, I think the, the dual thing of that is going, it's, it, it is ironic in the sense that I know that, you know, I can order food on my phone to my door or whatever. Um, but it isn't in the sense of like, will, will there be a, a world in 50 years or whatever? So, you know, a, simultaneously those two things. Yeah. And even you say, you're not sure if a comedian will still be a job in 10 years. Yeah. Is that a real concern? <laughs> I mean, I think it's it, it's real in the sense in the sense that any kind of um, any any one of those sort of deep kind of civilizational collapse anxieties is real. It's real as in like you could see how it could happen for sure. It doesn't it doesn't take like a a massive leap of the imagination to be like this could happen and this could happen and then AI and and a war and we're all dead, whatever. Um, <laughs> which I think is sort of the experience of being. Of, of sort of reading the news over the past 20 years or whatever is uh, is um, finding a billion different ways every day to um, to think yourself into uh, global collapse. Um, but at the same time, it's like, of course that won't happen. Of course it won't happen. Calm down. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's I, th- I think part of the show was like, I, I wrote it over the pandemic and part of it was trying to um balance that thing that I was finding really funny in myself which was one moment being just totally consumed with these really um like really overwhelming and dramatic fears and then the next second um doing truly the most mundane thing I'd ever done in my life um and feeling absolutely fine uh and to to try and sort of encapsulate that kind of um that spectrum of feeling um, and the simultaneous feeling of, of not being able to do anything about either of those things um, is, is what I sort of attempted to do in the show, I think. You said you wrote it over the pandemic. What was going on in your in your work, in your life at that at that time? Had you been doing comedy for, for long at that point? Um, not, not I, I mean, I wasn't, I would, I wasn't um, like doing it properly as in I wasn't doing it as like a full-time job. I had just graduated university, so I didn't really have a full-time job. And then as soon as the pandemic happened, I moved, well, I, I lived at home um, with my parents. I, yeah, I was just sort of trying to get it off the ground just before lockdown happened. That's and a tough time to start your, to start your career. <laughs> yeah. And again, it was, it was exactly, it was that thing of going, uh, yeah, this is really hard for everyone in the world and like thousands of people dying, whatever. But what about my my career in the arts? Yeah, you know, there, that, that there are very like... few open mics happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And no one had much time for those complaints, um, understandably. But it didn't it didn't feel <laughs> they didn't feel less important to me because uh, that was that was what I was going through. Um, yeah, but yeah, that well, simultaneous yeah the the double thing the of it hand, extremely uh, yeah. trivial. Yeah, on the one hand, you couldn't get up and perform live or do, you know, go to comedy clubs or anything, but you did have the time to sit down and write what ended up being this very, you know, complete show. So is there, was there a blessing in there? Was it, did you sort of, or did you try to sort of find the the upside in in the situation? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to go on record and say that I'm glad the pandemic happened because I think that that would be a mistake. Yeah, on balance. Um, But yeah, I mean, it definitely, I think for a lot of people, it was uh, that forced pause and stillness and um, period of reflection 
uh, on on who you are, what you want to do, what you want to create, um, why it's important to you. Can you can you even feel like you want to keep going with it in a world that seems to sort of not have a space for it anymore? All of that stuff, it, it, at the very least, gave um, people some time to think those questions through, I think, um, even though that was a sort of devastating process um, a lot of the time. Um, and that is, I think, those asking myself those questions um, is what ended up being the, the basis for, for what became this show, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know you've cited uh, Bo Burnham as an influence, um, and I certainly mm-hmm. see it in in your work. So what was your reaction to Inside when it came out during the pandemic? Were you already sort of writing this show? And, and how did that, <laughs> uh, the experience of watching that uh, influence you at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I loved Inside. I mean, I, I don't think anyone didn't love Inside. It was amazing. I think in terms of influence, it's always so hard to really as an individual have a, a kind of objective perspective on that i think but um i've always loved bo burnham i think i hope i'm I, I think i hope the generational difference manifests somewhat and i think that the way in which he you know he has this amazing like sort of solipsistic perspective uh on the pandemic and, and on his own sort of career and his own places as an artist and i think what I was feeling as someone not established in any way um, with no career and uh, with no, with no platform or voice as an artist at all um, was maybe something a little bit more manic, desperate um, and uncontrolled uh, and, and kind of um, self-contradictory as well. I think that was a, a big feeling that I constantly was having was like a real sense of, uh, my opinions and beliefs and viewpoints changing from one second to the next and directly contradicting the one that I felt before. Um, yeah, that's where that's where so much of the humor comes from in the show. Really, is sort of those those turns and setting something up, setting an expectation up, and then really uh, going in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, when we sat down, sort of developing it, it was like this wanting to give the audience a, a, a constant feeling of rug pull. Um, just like never, never letting anything settle enough for it to feel real um, or true. Um, but also hopefully through a kind of accumulation effect, getting at something real and true, um, almost through how little I end up actually saying. Yeah. Is there an example of a joke in the show that you feel like really encapsulates that um, rug pulling? <laughs> uh I mean, there's, 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 I mean, it's loads of them. One of my, my favorite lines, which I, I often use as an opener if I'm scared of the crowd and I, I want them to like me immediately is that I'll be like, um, I can sit, I, I'm a comedian, but I often, when people ask me what I do, I say that I'm an activist because I genuinely do think they're not going to check. And it's that kind <laughs> of, um, yeah. <laughs> The kind you, of, you think you're going to I say guess, something sincere, but but you're not. Yeah, it's it's the, the 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 show sort of the mode of the show, or like the most common sort of rhythm of the show is like a is like an earnest, um, worthy setup, um, followed by a callous, narcissistic, um, <laughs> rug pull punchline. Um, a few disclaimers before I start the show properly. I just want to say if there's like a topic or like an issue that I don't mention during the show, please don't read into that. 
I would just hate anyone to be leaving being like, oh yeah, it was kind of funny, but deafening silence on world hunger. <laughs> Is that an endorsement? No. Vis-a-vis <laughs> world hunger, I obviously think there are amazing arguments on both sides. <laughs> it's just... It's just for me personally, I know that other people know more about the issue. So I'm going to focus my energy on like raising them up, not literally, and kind of... <laughs> and kind of amplifying their voices. Again, not literally or figuratively. Great. So the, you're writing during the pandemic, you know, developing it. Mm -hmm. um, how does it then, you know, get on stage and become a show? What was that moment and an opportunity that allowed you to do that? Well, I guess uh, after, after, stuff, after sort of the rules started relaxing, I started doing work in progress shows um, towards with the hope of doing it at the edinburgh fringe was that was the, always the main goal i mean over here that is such like a a thing like a rite of passage thing of like taking your first solo show to the edinburgh fringe that was always the thing that i really wanted to do had you spent time going to that festival and, and seeing shows and yeah absolutely i was obsessed um from the age of about 15 i think i missed one year um so i would go every year and just be obsessed with it and then when i was at university i do i did three years of doing sketch shows up there just with my friends and that was really fun um but this was going to be the first like solo venture yeah which is like the thing it's the edinburgh thing is is solo ventures yeah i mean and again that's like part of the part of the kind of um again the, the sort of marketability element is that that was so specific this show was so specifically designed for edinburgh and i never really imagined it having a life beyond that um and so much of that is like really thinking about where it would sit and what it would do alongside other shows and how someone who has seen like truly five stand-up comedy hours in a day um would be sort of surprised or um you know, and the way I could subvert expectations by being alongside other stand-up shows. Um, so it was always with with the intention of it sitting in a, like, festival atmosphere. Um, and that's why that, that kind of thing of, like, someone debuting their first show at the Fringe um, has become such a, like, a well-worn... I don't know, it's, it's quite... It, it's become sometimes slightly like a cookie cutter often if like a agent is promoting their client they lean into certain um marketable attributes of that person or that stand-up it's about introducing a new authentic voice to the comedy right. landscape yeah. <laughs> and all of that stuff all of that stuff like to go back to your first question of like the why i introduced myself as the youngest comedian ever it's like that is truly not a million miles away from how um some promoters would uh, market their acts is being like, this guy is the gayest guy who's ever lived <laughs> or whatever. And you're like, what? <laughs> but they, it, because it's so oversaturated as a market that it's just anything to, to make people stand out. So that's, and, which is a running theme of the show. Did you feel like there were a difference in the, in the types of audiences that, you know, you got in Edinburgh versus London versus New York? Were there, were there things that evolved because of that? Yeah, for sure. For sure, like the the, I mean, even even on the level of like like I was saying, like the, being part of a festival in Edinburgh totally changes. I think what what the show is, um, and it be, be it, it, I think it feels like much more of a parody show um, 
in the Edinburgh context. Um, whereas in New York, it's re- it was really like this no context for anyone coming in. No one knew who I was. There was no reason for me to be doing it. It wasn't part of anything. It was just like some guy off Broadway has somehow got this like <laughs> opportunity. Let's go and sort of see what it's like. And it was a much more hit and miss experience, I think, with audiences because I, sort of without me realising in UK, in the UK and in Edinburgh and in London, I had found the scene that I w- was part of and, and the kind of audiences were more or less um, coming in with a vague sense of what it was going to be like and the kind of the, the, the sort of cynical, ironic level to it. Um, and then once it hit the state, especially off Broadway, it was a lot of Broadway crowds. And because part of them, the, I think the marketing strategy always for this kind of show is like find gay people, find young people. Um, and that can work really well, but sometimes it's a total misfire. If people come to this show wanting a, 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 a kind of more earnest, anecdotal, confessional show about how it's hard growing up gay. That is <laughs> almost the opposite of yeah. what they're getting. Uh, there were times, like, I mean, talking about that that kind of joke structure of like an earnest setup versus that, and then the ironic undercutting it. There were times in the US, especially in the first couple of weeks of the run, where I get like a full applause break after the setup. Oh yeah, that's but that's kind of that's kind of fun too, right? Because then you really get to cut it down. It's really fun. It's really fun. Um, it's fun for me. Yeah, <laughs> it's but less then fun. It's, the joke didn't get quite sort of the laugh hard, on the yeah. other end of it that you wanted. It got a it got a little bit of confusion. I think the other thing that I had really never considered is that, um, or at least this was my sense of it, is that my accent. I think in in the UK, it's I'm like two sentences in, people are like, "This guy's a fucking idiot." Um, whereas in the states i think there was just a longer lag because the 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 level of like dry irony i i think there was a sort of there's a kind of sense of intellectualism to a british voice or something or just like a less of an intuitive yeah we think we think all british people are smart yeah yeah the show really does not work if you think i'm smart <laughs> coming up leo weighs in on how tiktok and social media may or may not be ruining comedy, and what we're all getting wrong about cancel culture. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. 
By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some other comedians who had their big breaks very young, like Sarah Silverman, Michael Sarah, and Taylor Tomlinson, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Leo Reich. It's interesting talking about the, you know, starting in the in the live performance and theater because a lot of comedians your age right now are starting out on TikTok and social media and sort of getting an audience that way. I don't know how much of that you've done as well, but it's not your primary, you know, platform. Um I'm curious sort of what you what you think of that uh, you know, phenomenon of of comedians uh, you know, really getting an audience on on TikTok or social media and then sort of going from there. Cause I think sometimes it's possible they're not as prepared for the uh live stage and the and the big stage as as they might be otherwise. You know, I'm thinking of a, a comedian who's I think not quite as young as you, but is the hot uh thing here right now, which is uh Matt Reif, who's gotten quite a lot of attention uh over the last few weeks with his Netflix special. Yeah, I uh, I haven't seen that special, and I don't really know. I I I can't really comment on on Matt Rice specifically because I don't really know his stuff. Um, but I think in general, yeah, it does prioritize like different skills. I think and and a different way of writing and a different way of doing comedy. Um, and I don't think I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing if it's able to sit alongside the other types. I think the the thing that is always the fear when a new a new uh, approach or a new way of getting successful um, kind of comes up is the fear is that it will swallow the other stuff um, and push it out of the frame a little bit, uh, especially when you know the, the stuff that I kind of, the, the stuff that does well on the, in algorithms is a kind of even more extreme version of that thing I was talking about earlier, the, 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 the self-marketing and, and um, self-promotion elements and the, the way in which if you want to be successful on an app like TikTok, you really have to understand the algorithm and understand um, what section of the extremely atomized audience you are going to try and isolate and appeal to. And that's almost the opposite of what performing in comedy clubs is like, um, which is really starting from your atomized little group and your of your friends who you make laugh and using that as a base to try and find us some some kind of universalism or at least right towards a uni- more universal um kind of sense of humor on some level um but I, I mean i don't think it's a bad thing i think it's it's never been i i tried it out in the pandemic i'd post clips and stuff of me doing stand-up and i would occasionally attempt to like character like front-facing camera video or something I'm, I'm so bad at it uh and it also the stuff that i liked just didn't get didn't get good responses and the stuff that i thought was terrible got amazing responses and i just went i could i mean i could lean into this uh and ruin my own uh ability to enjoy my own output but that feels like a mistake at this juncture. And so I kind of backed off from the whole thing. Yeah, um, that's so crazy. It's like it's almost like the algorithm is uh, controlling people to make decisions, certain decisions and pushing them in a direction that uh, 
just to get a response. I mean, it's the same thing with, totally. with any social media, really, but even maybe uh, amplified with comedians and sort of that if they put certain opinions out there, they're going to get a certain reaction and encourage them to do it more. Totally. And and I think, you know, that, that manifests in, in all, in, in making anything really, but especially with comedy where you, even in a live context, you are going to carry on doing the stuff that gets the best response in the room. True. And yeah. that Works. will, your experience, yeah, the way you work and develop will depend on what those rooms happen to be. Um, and, you know, I've had loads of conversations. I'm extremely lucky that I grew up in London um i found the alt scene really quickly here and so i was in really nice rooms that ended up rewarding the kind of stuff that i also happened to like um but that's really not everyone's experience even in a live context so it i think you know maybe tiktok or or online comedy exacerbates some of those problems sometimes but um you know that they're also i mean i think there are probably great there's probably great stuff going on too i don't know (laughs) i don't i don't really use it yeah, I mean, there, there's it's sort of along these lines, but there's so much talk right now about sort of woke versus anti woke comedy uh, in in this country, um, and in some ways, I think you seem to exist, you know, um, you know, on the on in opposition to the sort of popularity of the anti woke comedy movement, um, you know, because you're a, a queer performer and all that. But as you said, you also do all of this sort of rug pulling and and sort of uh, upending expectations how do you how do you sort of think about that you have you have a great line as well you know, um if you believe in cancel culture you're a nazi and should be hanged um which kind of sums <laughs> up uh, your your take or your character's take on on cancel culture but uh but how do you how do you sort of think about those issues uh yeah i mean i think it's like a i think it's a really useful thing for a lot of comics to talk about or pretend exists more than it does i think like it's a really it's a like for a lot of more I have basic uh, stand-up comedy. Um, the the existence or the the appearance of the existence of a strong division between two types of people is like really useful as a setup and punchline for loads of jokes. Especially when almost everyone in the world, if you were like, "Are you pro or against cancel culture?" would be like, "I guess I'm against it because that sounds." terrible um so it's like a it's like a win-win i think for a lot of uh stand-ups to go on stage and rail against cancel culture because no one really thinks of themselves as a proponent of cancel culture so you're setting up a dichotomy that that doesn't exist um and in turn winning over the entire audience because they all basically agree with you um but and and yeah i I guess I, i in terms of the politics of my own act it's like i mean i i i didn't want anyone to come away from the show being able to like concretely say any belief that i actually would hold as a person um so there's no real there's nothing that isn't contradicted or undercut in some way um and like i said before i think it's more of it's more of a mood hopefully or a feeling that accumulates by the end than necessary like a a laundry list of um uh, political propositions. Uh, before I say anything else, can I just apologize about what I look like? Uh, I didn't have any time to change. I had to like run here straight from my dad's worst nightmare. It's been, <laughs> it's been a crazy day already. Um, I'm going to start the show in a second. Before I do, I just like to introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. I'm Leo. I'm queer. 
Yeah, you hear that? That's what shock sounds like. <laughs> Get used to it. <laughs> no, I'm, a, I'm queer, looking around. Seems like some of you guys might also have a sexuality which is iconic. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Um, personally, I identify as bisexual. And what that means specifically for me is that I am 90% gay and 10% absolutely committed to proving my year nine bullies wrong. With this HBO special coming out of your show, I think there's the potential for a lot more people to to see you, to, for you to gain a, a new level of uh, attention and, and fame. Um, does that excite you? Does it worry you? How are you feeling in this moment before, you know, potentially a lot more people are going to know who you are and, and see your work? Yeah, weird. So weird. <laughs> I feel so strange about it. I think it's my overwhelming feeling is like, what? Uh, it's really strange. I saw it that was I watched the the trailer for the show came out a couple of days ago and the top comment on the video is this guy doesn't even have 10k Instagram followers. Why the fuck <laughs> yeah. does he have a HBO special? And I was like, yeah, Good yeah, point. absolutely. Yeah. I I could have put, I could have written that. That's so true. Um, so I don't really know. I I think that it depends. <laughs> Honestly, I wish it was more complicated than this. I think it will depend on whether people are nice to me or not. Like it will. It'll be if people are so nice to me, then amazing. If the show's well received, then amazing. If people think that it's uh, funny and original, then absolutely incredible to have an increased level of fame. Um, if people think that I'm like a derivative hack with no good ideas and um, <laughs> ha have been given, it's been a huge mistake to have been given this platform, then yeah, I think then in that case, I think I'll be on podcasts going, actually, fame is a poison chalice um, or whatever <laughs> in about 20 seconds. Um, so I think it will, it will directly correspond to the response. Uh, the weird thing like for me, though, I, I mean, you were talking about the, the kind of persona versus me um, stuff is that, I mean, before this show, the, the show is on some level a um, avoidance tactic about the fact that I don't really love uh, getting on stage and talking as me or talking as me in general. Um, and and, it, and the, the, one of the main points of the show, I, I, I feel like for me, is that, that uh, it's quite hard to know what talking as yourself even really looks like um or like I, I i certainly find that hard so i think this the weirdest part of it so far has been doing in interviews and being like i guess i'm just gonna say what comes into my head and that'll be publicly available Written forever down somewhere yeah <laughs> yeah that's so weird yeah that's, that's so that's, weird that's kind of it's kind of weird right that's scary it's really strange especially i mean the i think growing up and having the experience of I think most people my age is that if you've ever liked a celebrity, you've also seen them say something horrible and violent on social media and then been publicly shamed for it. Uh, so really, we should be better at dealing with this kind of dealing with with like media and knowing when to speak and when not to speak and how to answer questions and stuff. And then you do the first interview and you just literally have no control over what comes out of your mouth. And it's like, <laughs> oh, God. Suddenly, I'm really empathetic to all these people saying random shit the whole time. I'm like, that's so easy to do. You can just say whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think you said anything too crazy so far. Maybe we'll get there. Okay, good. That's great. Okay, um, cool. <laughs> I'll work up to what it. Are, what are your 
you know, ambitions after the special comes out? What are the, what do you want? Do you want to do a, a show where you do speak more as yourself on stage or do you, do you want to go in the other direction and do more character stuff or how are you thinking about where to go after this? I think I need to let this settle a bit in terms of like stage stuff and stand up. I think that I've maybe uh, exhausted what I wanted to say through this version of myself. Um, and in a way, the, the the kind of themes of the show and the, the show as a whole developed alongside the persona um, and they feel very tied together. And I think it would be, it would feel odd to start writing new material as the guy in the tight top, tiny shorts and big black boots with eye makeup <laughs> version of me. Um, who, again, I mean, we were talking about it earlier, but the, the, again, feels so 23 years old uh, in some kind of deep spiritual sense. Um, so I think I'm I'm sort of looking for, in the way I did with that show, like another, another strand, another like ball of neuroses, another kind of version of... of those anxieties and a different way and a different kind of um, rhythm of expressing those those thoughts. I, I, I'd like to do, I guess, something slightly similar where it's me but not me, um, but just with a, a different part of myself, maybe. So now it's time for our final segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you a series okay. of questions. <laughs> um, and starting with uh, the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. As a kid growing up, like as like really a kid a child could be a child um, could be a, th- a teenager could be you know something that that you feel like really you found really funny early on i think this is i th- this is maybe quite embarrassing but i think i probably saw the film johnny english starring rowan atkinson and also the critically panned um pink panther remakes starring steve martin um both both widely hated and reviled um franchises yeah but i as a kid i fucking loved them i thought they were hysterical i genuinely think i've seen johnny english 20 times and probably the the pink panther movies 25 times each (laughs) that first pink panther film by the way i've been i've just i've spoken out about this before and i've used my voice i've used my platform to say amazing film starring beyonce with original music by beyonce and no one's talking about that (laughs) No one is. Yeah. Incredible. I, so I recommend I've, no one's talking about that. When was the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you could make other people laugh? Whoa, really late. I think probably seven, 17, I think I must've been 17 years old. Um, where I started, <laughs> I essentially, there was a bit, there was a bit of high school where I would just kind of do a kind of, um, almost like, I, I don't think you have English panel shows in the States, but there's a sort of type of English awkward, uh like sort of anxious boy persona that's very popular over here i kind of tapped into that age 17 and i was like i would be at a party being like goodness me everyone's smoking you know that kind of stuff (laughs) that was your bit that was my bit that was my bit um people died for it they were rolling in the (laughs) aisles everyone else hooking up and taking ketamine me being like well shouldn't we call our parents to come pick us up that's that sort of stuff Gold. It's gold. What do you remember about the very first time you performed um, by yourself on stage, you know, telling jokes that very first time getting up? uh, Where were you? How did it go? Um, You know, what do you remember about it? I think it was probably the second week of uni and they did this show at uni that was for like freshers, like new arrivals who wanted to try comedy. And I did five minutes of stand up that was (laughs) that was really kind of... uh, 
I don't know. It was, it was just really self-effacing. The whole thing was just like, God, I'm bad at sex, that kind of thing. Um, and it was, and it was absolutely amazing because obviously the entire crowd were like drunk students who knew me. So the response was <laughs> rapturous. They loved it. And I got a, it, I mean, the bar was set extremely high very early which it needs to be. You need to. You need a. You need a really strong sense of delusion at the you, start. You definitely to get do, anything yeah. done, just to push through the the horror and the fear. Um, so that really worked for me. Do you have a first bomb story? The first time that uh, maybe it was the next time. I don't know that that it, that it really didn't go well. First bomb. I. You know, I've never thought about the first time or or, wor- or worst. I was, suppose, but <laughs> worst bomb. Worst bomb was recent. Was more recent. A couple of years ago, when I was work- workshopping stuff for this show, as you can imagine, if I got the wrong crowd, it would just be awful. And there was one time where I was doing fifteen minutes, um, and as I went up, a comedian I had just arrived, like arrived for my spot, and the comedian just coming off was like, "Oh, just so you know, um, there are a lot of veterans in the crowd. I don't know what war it was, but it was a- an old one. Yes, because these yes. people were that they, they were you know, on the way out." And I say that with so much love and so much respect, but they did not like my 15 minute long bit about how Loki from the Marvel movies is bisexual uh, (laughs) because they didn't know who Loki was and they didn't know what being bisexual was. Yeah. You're starting at a real deficit there. Yeah. (laughs) I really, I had nothing else to give them. I had nothing else to give them. And also, oh, and this is why it was so bad. It was my birthday. Oh, it was my 20, 22nd birthday, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> and it just really just sent me to a new depth. That was that was low. Do you remember the first joke that you wrote that really worked every time you told it and just and felt like you really you had something and, and you were really proud of it? Uh, I used to do this thing. I used to do a joke where this is probably in that first performance where I was being sort of awkward about it to, to my student friends. But um, I did a joke where I was like, uh, I'm bisexual, but a lot of the time... I think that people assume that I'm gay and I think I figured out why that is. I think it's because of the way that I speak and the things that I say and how I act. And people would love that. <laughs> very straightforward. Because <laughs> I seem so gay. Very straightforward. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old. Just really just working out. Had not come out to my parents. So I think it was just good to know that everyone really did get gay from me. Yeah, that's kind of the, second one. <laughs> Finally, can you think of a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? <laughs> oh God, so many. I mean, because I was such a, a massive, obsessive comedy fan when I was like a teenager into my uh, like into my twenties, though, and I would go to to every comedy show and like get drunk and talk to the people like one of those weird comedy fans. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. And there have been so many... So I've met... In terms of meeting my heroes, the first time I met a lot of my heroes was drunk at a bar with me going, and your show in 2015, what I loved about <laughs> the structure there, which actually changed my life. And, like, I'm on the brink of tears, but also on the brink of throwing up. Um, and that's happened many times i think there was what one stands out where I was, at, I was at the bar of the um beautiful soho theater god bless them uh talking to someone who i really loved who was in a who was in a sketch group and i was trying to do i think some kind of character 
that I was like, at the time I was like, this is fucking gold. Uh, this is, I'm killing. And I got to the end of like this bit that I thought would be like incredible. He was going to love it. I think it was just out with his friends trying to have a nice time. And he goes, I, and he said it so kindly, but he, he looked at my eyes and he said, I really, who was that for? And it just <laughs> cut. Oh, my, and it was, it became such a like um, core memory that sometimes still, to this day, if I say something that I think is going to be funny and it's not funny, my friends will be like, who was that for? <laughs> it was helpful. It was helpful. <laughs> it was helpful. It was helpful. You've got to grow. You've got to learn. You've got to grow. Well, Leo, thank you so much for talking with me today. I love your special and I think uh, it's going to get a lot of great attention and I hope uh, everyone is very kind. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I hope and I pray every day that they're going to be kind. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been so fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Leo Reich. He is a very impressive performer, and I can't wait to see where his career goes from here. But first, his new debut special, Literally Who Cares, premieres on HBO this Saturday, December 16th, and will be available to stream on Max. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude. You can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.